Welcome to the Why God Why podcast brought to you by Browncroft Community Church. My name is Harry Gibbs. I'm a member at Browncroft and producer of the show. I'm joined by our hosts, Peter Engler, Director of Adult Ministries at Browncroft and John Amayo, New York State Crew Director. Why God Why is a podcast where we're asking the 21st century questions about God that you never thought you could. Today's topic is Why God Why is Christianity different than other religions? So I'll bring uh, Peter and John on before we welcome our special guest. And uh, let's break down this question and kind of what angle we're looking for. Yeah, I'm really excited about this question. In episode four, we asked, why is Jesus the only way? And I feel like this is a great complement to that question of what makes Christianity different because we lose sight of, and we, in some ways, it's not just Americanizing Christianity, but we see our own context where we don't let the message of Christianity change us. John, how how have you engaged this question? Well, I mean, I feel like uh, people that I interact with, and I interact with a lot of college students, I, I feel like now there's a sense in which everybody kind of considers everything basically the same. And, and and so you pick your own flavor of what works and this seems like this is, this works for me or that works for me. But we don't really delve into what each specific religion actually is saying about itself. And so I think there generally is a lack of understanding from people as far as what each religion is actually saying. Do they all lead to the same place? I think most people would say now, Oh yeah, basically they all say the same thing, be good and then, you know, you'll get bonus points in God's eyes. That's basically what people would say. And I think Christianity kind of flips that on its head a little bit. So it's going to be really fun conversation today to delve into that a little bit more. Yeah, Dave Hurtwick is a personal friend and um just I'm very appreciative of uh, his journey and so without further ado, uh, Dave, before we get started, you know, you've had, you know, a transformation, so to speak, with this question. And so, you know, I, I think it'd be helpful for our listeners, you know, you're someone that's grown up in the church, you know, when everybody else kind of left the church because they felt like there was hypocrisy and there was a problem, uh, you stayed. Why don't we start there and why don't you share a little bit of your journey of how Christianity became authentic and real to you based on this question. Yeah, thanks, Peter, and thanks, John, for having me here. Thanks, Harry. Um, I grew up, as you said, in a in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor, so I'm a PK. And um, Shout out to all the PKs yeah, out there. Me, yeah, too. All the yeah. survivors. Yeah. <laughs> um, my experience was fantastic, actually, yeah. and, and I know not everybody's is. Actually, right. it was my first PK retreat. The fellowship I'm a part of is the Assemblies of God, and they actually organize these things called Pastor's Kid Retreats uh-huh. once a year, and they kind of pull all the PKs from New York State together. And uh, I went as a seventh grader, and that was my first time realizing that some kids hate being a PK. Like I went into that thinking like, everybody must think this is the greatest life. And I was like, listen to kids, like how angry they are at the church and their parents. And I'm like, Oh, am I supposed to be angry? Like, so anyway, um, growing up in church, uh, just, um, really grateful for my upbringing. My parents raised me to, to love God, to know God and to love his people. And, uh, as soon as I, I went to a Christian high school, really a Christian school from third grade through in Syracuse, uh, went right off to Bible school, came back and joined my dad's church as a youth pastor. And so really my entire life has been immersed in the Christian culture uh, in the church. And 
I thought I understood what it was all about. And I think what you're referencing, Peter, is that there became a moment in my life, I was probably about 25 years old, so I was about five years into ministry. I was a pastor. I was on my way to being ordained. And I began to have this realization that my understanding fundamentally of what it meant to love and follow Jesus was wrong. Mm. And um, I began to realize I didn't really understand the message of the gospel. And for me, when I looked back at my life, all of my behavior, all of my religious activity, all of my spirituality was really motivated by one of two things, fear or pride, the desire to protect myself. So I grew up in a church where you'd hear a lot of things about hell Mm -hmm. and the rapture. And so I had this tremendous fear of going to hell and the tremendous fear of getting left behind. We used to watch these scary like tribulation films. They're New- really, really bad, by yeah. the way. If you haven't, if you haven't watched them, you don't want to go back and look at them right now because <laughs> they're, they're. By not- the way, they're on YouTube. Like you can oh, no. watch the entire. Like go if you're, you know, press pause on the podcast. Spend the next hour and a half watching Thief in the Night on YouTube. You will. You, you- will not get that hour and a half back. No, <laughs> but you won't sin also for the next day. I promise you that. So I grew up with this tremendous fear of going to hell and being left behind. and But also I grew up with this desire to not just protect myself, but prove myself. Because the way that I fed my need for approval and acceptance as a PK in a church was to be a good Christian kid. Mm-hmm. And so I came to a point in my life where I look back at all of my um, quote-unquote serving Jesus, living for Jesus, going to Bible school, becoming a pastor, and I began to be confronted with the question, have I ever really done anything because of my love and appreciation for what Jesus did for me? Or has everything I've done been my own attempt to bring to completion what I obviously at some point misunderstood wasn't finished on my behalf, right? So Mm. this achieving of righteousness versus receiving of righteousness. And I remember having moments where listening to guys like Tim Keller preach the gospel in a way that was fresh for my ears. And I want to be careful to say, I don't think I didn't hear the gospel prior because I grew up in a church where the gospel was faithfully preached. But there is something, of course, about when the Holy Spirit starts to breathe in a, in a way in your heart to, to position you to hear and receive. And so I remember, like, I'd be listening to his sermons while I was mowing my lawn, and I'd be done mowing the lawn, and the sermon's not done. And I'm just standing there in my garage, like, <laughs> listening, because he has this way of ending messages where, mm-hmm. of course, it lifts up Christ. And I'm just, like, standing in my garage, like, weeping. Because like the gospel is coming alive in my heart. I'm sure my neighbors are like, this guy hates mowing the lawn. This has got some serious issues. So for me, like that, and that sort of launched me into this journey of, um, Jared Wilson would call it a gospel awakening. It may have been a conversion experience. I honestly don't know, but um, certainly a, a better understanding, appreciate, and then a desire to help other people just like me realize. Christianity is like the gospel is good news. It's so much better than you've always thought it was. It's better than you can ever comprehend. And how do we faithfully preach the gospel in a way that helps people see the beauty and truth that's found in Jesus, but also has the power to then change their lives? Yeah, dude, that's so powerful. I just resonate with your story in my own life. Like, uh, you know, it was 24 actually that I decided to really follow Jesus with my life, even though I knew all the stories, Mm -hmm. you know, I grew up in the church too. And so, yeah, having that real experience, it was something that was totally like, I've, I've heard it explained this way. There's a certain music of the gospel that mm. that so so if you walked into a room and you saw somebody with headphones on and you just watched them just kind of 
bebop into the music and you know maybe they're singing out loud they're acting like they're having a, a, a mic in front of their hand or something and they're just really into it right you could go up next to that person and do exactly what they're doing and you're kind of imitating what they're doing and in some ways to somebody coming into that scene they might go oh look they're both doing the same thing but one person is tuned into the music and the other is just kind of going through the motions mm. and um, it's different when you're turned into the music than when you're just going through the motions. Yeah. What a great metaphor. Actually that I like I'm a, I'm a foodie or I guess that's a nice way of saying I overeat. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, a story that I often use a similar sort of concept to communicate this with a different metaphor is, and I wrote about this in something Peter and I, one time were in Philadelphia and we went downtown to eat at a restaurant called Amada, which is this great Spanish mm. tapas bar. Jose Garces is an iron chef. He's the head chef. And so we're there. And I remember we sat, it was you, me, and maybe Rob Kirk. And uh, I ordered lamb chops. And I remember saying to Peter, Peter, have you had lamb? Do you like lamb? And he kind of was wishy-washy. Mm. He's like, I think I've had lamb. And so in my head, I'm like, he's never had lamb. Like he, <laughs> if, if you're wishy-washy on lamb, you've not had good lamb. And so it comes out, it's a perfect mid-rare and just like, and I want to convert Peter. <laughs> so He did, by the way. <laughs> and so I sliced off a tiny piece for him, which pained me. And I was like, here, you got to try this. And I remember watching Peter's face as he's eating lamb. And it's like, all of a sudden now, mm. everything he thought he knew he's experiencing. Mm. And he looks at me, and I'll never forget what he said. He says to me, maybe I've never had lamb before. Like, I don't think I've actually had lamb before. Uh, and that was kind of that moment for me where it was like, you know, the taste and see the goodness of God. And in Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, he says, we need to know what we can't know. Mm -hmm. Which is like, what is Paul saying? What he's saying is we need a, like an experience with what we intellectually know, mentally assent to. And for me, for whatever reason, the Spirit of God sovereignly chose the ministry of Tim Keller, the moment of life, about being about 25 years old, to give me the taste. Mm. And then once you have the taste, it's like, there's nothing better than this. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm curious, I want to get a little bit technical because I, I think it's going to be helpful, but so we use the word gospel like all the time. So the gospel of healthy eating, you know, the gospel of politics, like people use that as like kind of a message. And so I guess for our listeners and even, you know, I'm even selfishly for me, how do I know that I'm experiencing the authentic gospel rather than even a counterfeit gospel? So, you know, we're assuming that our our listeners, they want to know who Jesus is. They want to experience what the life change that he can bring in their life. And there might be different degrees of that. So, you know, there might be our listeners that feel like I'm free to do whatever I want. Jesus is an add-on. There's probably some of our other listeners like this is the right way to live. And so I'm just going to do all that's right. Help us understand what's real versus counterfeit when it comes to the gospel. Well, I think that conversation starts with scripture. So how does scripture, what does scripture reveal to us about the gospel, the central message of Christianity? And then as far as on the back end of that conversation, we're talking about what sort of power does it have to change your actual life? So on one hand, what do we see the gospel to be? You know, and the gospel comes from a term evangelion, which basically means good news. And it's pulled out of this sort of ancient context where people would run back from the battlefront to the village or town with the good news that the king had won. And that proclamation of good news changed the attitudes, hearts, and lives and future of everyone who heard it. 
So that town that was living under anxiety and stress and the burden of, are we going to be taken by another king or are we going to be able to live free now has this proclamation. So when, when I talk about the gospel, and this is why I have three little girls, like the number one thing I want them to know about the gospel is it's good news, not good advice, right? So the gospel is good news. It's what's been done, not what you have to do. Now, there are gospel implications, right? And so even in Paul's writings and in his letters, we see he front loads most of his letters with gospel reminders, and then he back loads them with what I would call gospel response. So there is a response ultimately uh, to the gospel. And one of the evidences that you don't really understand the gospel is that there's no change in your life, that it's not working in you. So that's one indicator. So the gospel is good news. What is the good news? And simplest way you could say it is the gospel is the good news of the person and work of Jesus. But one of the definitions that I like is that the gospel is the good news that God is rescuing humanity and renewing creation, both of those things, in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So there's a lot there, but essentially it's good news. It's God's work. It's in and through the person and work of Jesus. It's rescuing humanity, but it's also renewing creation. So it's a holistic gospel, not just sort of like get us to heaven, but establish God's kingdom here on earth. And it's only done because of what Christ has done on our behalf. I know there's some hang up on that language as far as substitutionary work and what that means, but I think everybody would agree Jesus did something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. The mechanics of that, there's lots of room for conversation on. So I think starting with this sort of like revelation of here's what the good news is, then how is the good news, how's the gospel changing me in different areas of my life? And if I'm not growing more patient with people who frustrate me, if I'm not growing more loving towards people who are unlovely, if I'm not, if the desires of my heart are not being shifted, shaped, changed, melted, moved, then the issue is not work harder on my desires. The issue is go back to my lack of belief in the gospel. So we define discipleship at our church as moving from unbelief to belief in the gospel in every area of our lives, changing who we love and, and how we live. And there's all of that implied in really understanding, receiving, and centering your life on the gospel. Wow. So let's go back to when you're 25, Dave. Uh, you're all of a sudden you're kind of captured by this in a fresh way. Yeah. What was it that, that really captured you? Like in that moment, like what brought you to tears after you're, you're mowing the lawn, you know, and, and all of a sudden you're overcome by the emotion of this truth. Yeah. Like, can you kind of place yourself back there and, and, and remember what that was for you? I think part of it was this realization that all of scripture exists to reveal Jesus. Mm. And I had a dichotomy in my mind of kind of new Testament, old Testament. And I knew that there was like types in the old Testament. And ultimately I knew that Jesus came to fulfill the law but I didn't really understand that like every prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament points to a greater, true and better uh, prophet, priest, and king. That every story really, if you pull on is, um, I forget who says this, if it's D.A. Carson or Mateer. But anyway, if you pull on the thread of every story, it takes you to really the gospel, takes you to the cross. And so when Keller in particular would, I remember one message where he was talking about um, Jacob wrestling with God, right? Mm. And that whole story, and then he kind of brought this idea of like how God has made himself weak so that he can um, come draw near to us and, and give us the blessing that we need and take. And he's he's kind of like tying it all in and showing how Jesus is is in the story and is pointing. And it's just like this moment of realization, like everything is, the Old Testament stories are not morality tales to teach me how to live primarily, mm -hmm. right? 
we can learn from examples. And Paul in Corinthians, I think 1 Corinthians 15 says, they are an example to us. So we can't, that's one of the mistakes people make, by the way, when they kind of do this gospel deep dive, mm-hmm. is they pull out, they, they basically stop using Old Testament stories as these actually are some examples for us, but they're not mm-hmm. primarily that. Primarily they're there to point us to Christ in a way that causes us to love Jesus more. Because what really changes us is not more self-determination to live like Joseph did when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, mm-hmm. but to really see who Jesus is and what he's done for us, rearranging the, the priorities and the love in our hearts so that we can now serve him. So that was that was part of it. And I think a big part of it was just the idea of realizing um, there's rest and joy mm-hmm. in knowing Jesus. It's not a burden. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not this heavy weight of like, he did his part, now I have to do my part. And I got to prove that I deserve what Jesus did for me. And I have to earn what Jesus did for me. And there's this freedom of receiving what he's done for me and then resting in it, rejoicing in it, responding to it with my life. So getting the order right, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of getting the roots strong so that the fruit can grow versus trying to tape fruit on a dying tree, you know? Yeah, that that just resonates so much, even with my own experience, as I think about like what I went through, kind of the same journey, you know, this this journey of looking at Jesus in a fresh way. And for me, it was like reading the Gospels again. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was reading the Gospel of Matthew and it was like, I was like, I didn't know this about, I'd, I'd read about it my whole life, but it was almost like, I never knew this, Jesus. He's much different than I thought he was. And I remember getting to the end of Matthew and being like, oh my goodness, like here's Jesus dying. And it was like, God was almost saying to me personally, like I did that for you. Mm. And whoa, I I, I like, it was like one o'clock in the morning as I was reading this. And I remember laying in my bed going, I got to do something with this. Mm. And like, I could fall asleep right now, but if I fall asleep, like I'm like turning my back on God, if I fall asleep right now. And I remember tossing and turning for like an hour before finally just saying, okay, I give up Jesus. I, I, this is it. I just trust you. And Boom. I, I mean, it's so weird to say, but it was like the music was turned on or like I had lamb for the first time. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I went, I, I literally did this. I went to the bathroom and I checked the mirror in the bathroom because I looked at my reflection and I thought I have to look different. Like I can't <laughs> be the same dude. It, internally, I felt so different. Um, And for me, that was like that moment of like that having that lamb moment kind of. Dave, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I just, I respect your perspective, not just because you're well-read, but you've spent a lot of time with students, young adults, and young professionals. And so I'm wondering, you know, and just, I'm hearing John share this experience, you know, it's interesting. I'll share probably a little bit more about my experience later, but if you're sitting down with one of our listeners who has questions and is thinking through what you're saying, you know, I think, you know, whether it's millennials or generation um, Y, uh, you know, and, you know, there's this weird desire and ambition to be famous, to make a difference, to matter. And not all of that's bad, but just you have a little bit of perspective. You spent some time with students. Why does this matter? 
why does why does Jesus matter to my life right now as I'm pursuing you know the next step? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think if I was talking with somebody about this and having a conversation with a young person about why Jesus makes such a difference, I mean, I would start probably by sharing some of my own story and some of the way that Jesus has made a difference in my life. But ultimately, Jesus is, you know, um, I forget who I heard this from, but I've used this many times. If you make two lists of people and on one list, uh, you make a list of the most influential people throughout history. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you respect Christianity or not, like if you have any sort of intellectual integrity, Jesus has to be in your top five. I mean, Mm. there's no doubt about that. Probably top two, right? So um, if you make another list of people throughout history who claim to be God, it's it's a much harder list to make because those people are easily forgotten because it's the most ridiculous, insane claim for a human being to make, right? Um, So whose name is at the top of both of those lists, really? Only the name of Jesus. And so you're left with this sort of tension of, I have to know something about this man. He's too, his impact on history, the, the radical nature of his claims and the radical nature of his impact on history sort of, I think, leave anybody who's willing to be honest with this, um, really the onus is on them to say, I need to really look at him and understand. In other words, Jesus is not a historical figure to not have an opinion about. You know, you can go through and not have much of an opinion about Julius Caesar or, or Napoleon and be like, I don't really care about him. Like, no big deal. You, you're not afforded that with Jesus. Like, you really need to look into him, examine his life, examine his claims, um, examine the fact that, you know, billions of peoples have based their lives on this man's life and the claims that he made and the claims that scripture make that he died, that he was buried and that he rose again, that he was seen by over 500 people that, you know, flipped the world upside down in a course of 300 years from Christianity being a religion of nobodies to being the official religion of, of Rome. So men who were cowards giving their lives, telling this story, going to right. So you're sort of confronted with this idea of like, I'm not sure you can just dismiss Jesus. I don't think it's wise. Um, I don't, I'm not saying you have to just blindly accept him either. I'm just saying like, you got to really look into this, right? So that's one thing I would want to say to them is like, have you really considered who Jesus is? And then the power that Jesus has in our lives to rearrange our affections, to, to make us free. Um, I think, I forget who says this, but when we preach the gospel, we should preach it in a way that people who don't believe, even if they leave still not believing, they should leave wishing it was true. They should leave going, and I don't know if that's true, but man, I, if it was, that would be pretty amazing. That would change my life. Until you're preaching the gospel that way, you, maybe it's the news you're presenting isn't good enough. And so there's something about the news. Just, what if somebody established your value and worth, your significance, gave you right standing with the only judge that matters in the entire universe, did that for you? Un, it's undeserved. It's unmerited. But it's also like it's, it's not changing. It's, it's a sure thing. It's a finished work, and it's yours to receive, and it can free your heart from all the things that drive you in all of your other pursuits. So there's different ways of going about your career. There's different ways about pursuing relationships, and there's a way of doing it that is resting in Christ's finished work for your on your behalf, and there's another way many people are becoming enslaved to their pursuits because they don't have anything to really rest in, and so now they're trying to rest in their own achievements, their own accomplishments, the things that they think make them matter. Um, um, who's that? Who's the philosophy? Oh, James K. E. Smith from Calvin College, professor of philosophy. He says that to be human is to be animated by and oriented towards some vision of the good life. 
So animated by, motivated by, compelled by, pushed by, mm-hmm. oriented towards, aiming for, directionally, some vision of the good life. What is our vision of the good life? And everybody has one, you know? And so Jesus becoming the vision of your good life now gives you the motivation and direction in your life that you've been looking for in all other places. Mm-hmm. David Hertwick, lead pastor, Trinity Assembly of God. <clears throat> Thanks. Uh, you, you are our guest uh, on the Why God Why is Christianity Different Than Other Religions. I I wanted to steer our conversation. I think that's uh, a great question by Peter. Why does this matter? But I think in turn, uh, we should also tackle this idea that uh, religions have a perception of lacking freedom for the individual. And I think while there's a message of uh does it matter that it needs to be tackled by each individual? But also I think there's a hang up of religions are just life sucking and I don't want that. Um, so how do you tackle that uh, when you're, I guess, presented that w- by an individual? So you're asking me basically how does the, how does Christianity uniquely free people or how is it different than um, other religions when it comes to um, the way people live their lives and don't feel bound up and controlled by something. Yeah, I think uh, you you could tackle it from different angles. I think it depends on that particular person's hang up. Okay. Is it the idea of religion altogether, or is it specifically the religion of Christianity? But I think ultimately the hang up is each religion presents its own uh, structure that I don't want to live within. Hypothetically, sure. sure. Yeah, there, there's a really famous. Um, um, address that David Foster Wallace gave at Kenyon College. And um, in it, he talks about this idea that everybody worships, right? And David Foster Wallace, if you're not familiar, Pulitzer Prize winning author, born in Ithaca, actually ended his own life, not a believer, not a religious person, but super insightful into the human nature. And I don't have the quote in front of me, and I, I won't be able to say it from memory, but essentially he says, um, everyone worships something. Everybody gives their life to something. Everybody looks to something for ultimate meaning, value, purpose, and worth. And he says, if it's beauty, then you're going to spend your whole life thinking you're not beautiful enough. And actually, I remember this one line. He says, you're going to die a thousand deaths before they finally plant you, right? As you get older and you age. If it's power, you're always going to be hungry for power. You're always going to need more. If it's intellect, you're always going to feel like you're a fraud on the verge of being found out. And he says, like, the insidious things about these is that they're they're not necessarily evil on their own, uh, but they just sort of are default mode, right? This is where we go. And so the Bible uses this metaphor consistently throughout the Old Testament, especially of idolatry, to describe sin. Basically, it's making something your master other than God, enslaving yourself to something or someone. And it seems to go away a little bit in the New Testament, except there's a word that constantly pops up in the Greek, is epithemia, which the King James translates lust, problem with that is we all think of sexual sin right away. And I think the NIV and many other translations translate it as sinful desires. Now, the problem with that defi- that translation is that when I hear the phrase sinful desires, I assume what makes my desire sinful is the object of my desire. So because I want to watch pornography, that makes it a sinful desire because I want to cheat, because I want to lie, right? But actually, when you study out the word, it's not the object of the desire that makes it sinful. It's the amount of the desire. It's an over-desire. So what the New Testament writers are saying is an over-desire, even for good things, is actually can lead us into sin and lead us into slavery and lead us into enslavement. So the idea of freedom, I think, is a little bit of a farce because nobody's truly free. Everybody lives for something, 
Everybody's life is about something. Everybody is pursuing something. Everybody has that vision of the good life. The question is, is what are the thing that you're pursuing, the thing that is your vision of the good life, the thing that's become your master, does it actually have the power to set you free? And so with other things, as, as you pursue them, you always need more and you're enslaved to more, whether it's more success, more appreciation, more approval, more power. Like it's never, no one ever just says like, that's enough. You're never going to hear a sports player go, I won my championship. This year doesn't count. Right. I remember, uh, I'm a Yankee fan. So this is a painful example, but I remember when the Red Sox finally defeated the Yankees and Terry Francona was the manager and in spring training, he just accomplished this historic thing, right? This thing right out of the pit of hell. And he, and uh, (laughs) he accomplished this thing, but they interviewed him in spring training and he basically said like, we can't enjoy that anymore. We got to do it again. And, and and right in there, he captures this idea of like, whatever you get, your next job, promotion, your next relationship, your next moment of pleasure, your next moment of appreciation, like how long does that actually last? And does it actually set you free? So I think there's a lot of people who think that their pursuits set them free when their pursuits actually are enslaving them. Because anything yeah. you have to have has you, right? Yeah. You think you got it on a leash, but it has you on a leash. So what does it look like to make Jesus your master? Well, I think as Keller says, he's the only master that if you, if you get him, so to speak, he can completely satisfy you. And if you fail him, he can faithfully forgive you, but no no other master in your life can actually set you free. And so that's, what's one of the unique things about the Christian message is it's not resting on your performance it's resting on his performance, which frees you to live your life in a way that honors him and not live your life in a way that enslaves you to lesser things. You know, I I, I want to hang on this point because I, I think it's so like important. And, you know, whether you're um, like a church person, you go every week or whether you're not, I, I think that we all kind of live with that. So I want to come back to the David Foster Wallace. So let's take, you know, a couple examples. Um, so achievement, you know, promotion, success. Um, let's take pleasure. Like walk someone through that. If they're really, really honest, and I, I think our listeners are really honest that, you know, you can say that you're following Jesus, but pursue this. And, and that's part of my life. But like, just walk someone through, hey, what does it look like if you carry that out? And even just, I would say you make it and you attain it. And also you don't make it and you're consistently looking for that. I mean, just walk out a few of those examples and just maybe from your experience, you know, some people that have walked through those and just... It's tiring. It's yeah. exhausting. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the only thing worse than not getting what you want is getting it mm. and realize it was never enough to begin with. Mm. I forget if it was revisionist history or anyway, there was a podcast I was listening to recently where, no, it wasn't revisionist history. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I forget what it was, but um, they were talking about Moby, you know, this famous mm. electronic musical artist. And he talked about how like at the height of his career, like literally the night that was like, he would point to and say, that was the height of my career. He won a bunch of awards. He was over in Europe. He's at this, he's at the penthouse of this amazing hotel that's only reserved for VIPs. He's looking for a way to open a window to jump out. Mm. He said, at the height of my career, I was so miserable because essentially I got everything I ever wanted and I was still not satisfied. I was telling Jim Carrey in another interview has said, I wish everybody could get rich and famous so that they would know it's not enough. Right. So we have all this evidence from people. If getting everything made us happy, then the wealthiest people in the world would be the happiest people in the world. And the famous people and the celebrities, they wouldn't suffer so much and they wouldn't be so miserable and they wouldn't jump from relationship to relationship and from a comp, you know, looking for their next. So 
I think there's a lot of evidence just in human nature that getting it isn't going to be enough. But then when you don't get it, when it, when it escapes you, the power it has to crush you because you've given that thing power to define you, right? Mm. So now your identity, instead of being in Christ, which is part of the gospel message, that we are joined with Christ. We're not just, yes, next to Christ or yes, with Christ or I'm on his team. No, you're, it's, it's union. That's part of the gospel metaphor. You're united to Christ, so you're in Christ. You have a new identity as a child of God, as an heir to the promise, right? You're sealed for the day of redemption. All these things are true of you. If you don't get that in Christ, you're going to get that identity somewhere else. And so these pursuits become much more about what I can do. It becomes about who I am. And you hear stories of people who, when they get athletes who get injured or people who lose the ability to do something that means a lot to them, They'll actually say out loud things like, if I'm not that, then what am I? There's no scarier place to be than to lose your sense of self. And actually, that's what Jesus says when he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? The word soul there in the Greek is the word psyche. He could have used another word that would have implied more eternity, and I think that is implied there. But really what he's saying is, in your pursuit of other stuff, you're actually going to lose your sense of self. You become what you Behold. In other words, you you are what you worship, which is the title of a James K. Smith book. But whatever you give your heart's deepest affections to and your mind's attention to, that is the thing that you look to, to and that's the thing that begins to shape you. You begin to you begin to turn into those very things. And so it has that sort of power over you to crush you, to destroy you, and not ultimately to free you. David, I, I just imagine there's people who are listening right now who are going, Wow, you're like reading the book of my life right now. Like you're just, you're reading my mail as you're talking about, you know, worshiping something out there and it ruling your life. Say, say that person is, is listening right now and they're like, wow, I, I realize that this is just not the right way to go. How would you, how would you tell them like, okay, this is what Jesus gives you. Like, this is the step. This is what it takes to to follow Jesus. How would you articulate for that for them that would be like, here's the freedom. Here yeah. it is. I think the first thing I would want to do is kind of disabuse them of the mentality that they can do this for themselves, mm. right? So this is a spiritual, sovereign, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus to our hearts and regenerating our hearts. And so the first thing I would say is like, let's pray that the Spirit of God will do this work on your behalf that you can't do for yourself. And I would try to prevent them from thinking, because here's what what we are, right? We're fixers. Mm -hmm. So if we've identified the problem, now it's like, okay, good. I know the problem. Let me fix it. Mm -hmm. And we try to like break in on our own heart. I use this metaphor with teenagers a lot. You know, the game operation, Mm -hmm. that that game where it buzzes when you touch Like, you know, a lot of times we, we try to change ourselves the way we play the game of operation. We try to find the issues with us and reach in and pull those things out. I say, what if, and I tell them, don't do this because this is cheating and it'll probably break the game. But what if instead, uh, what if somebody took like water and slowly poured water into the operation board? What happens to all those little pieces that you've been trying to get? It surfaces all of them and it actually pushes them all out so then they can be dealt with. Mm. And Thomas Chalmers, this, this old Scottish minister, he, he wrote this thing called the expulsive power of a new affection. Essentially what he said is the way to change is not to try to remove your unhealthy affections or your, dis, um, your out of proportion desires, uh, your, any of that. He says the way to change is to have a greater new affection push out those lesser affections. And he gives the example of a young child who's holding a rusty knife. You want to get that rusty knife from them. They don't want to give it to you. But what if you give them a shiny new toy? Then they gladly lay down 
unless they're violent. <laughs> then, they, then they gladly lay down that rusty knife for that shiny new toy. And so really the solution here is to see Jesus, to behold him, to see him. And again, we can't do that for ourselves, but what can we do? Faithfully position ourselves to consider Christ through the spiritual disciplines of reading scripture, meditation, prayer, being in a church with good teaching, teaching that points to Jesus and doesn't point to ourselves. You know, one of the things you should look at when you're considering a church is when I leave this church on Sunday morning and I leave the message, am I, do I leave thinking more about Jesus or thinking more about myself? Mm-hmm. And we, we as preachers should target for directing the hearts of the listeners to Jesus so that they can worship on the spot and worship begins to change them, sanctify them and grow them. And so, um, those are some of the things that I would probably say to them is like, stay faithful in considering Christ and let's pray that the spirit of God illuminates the work of Jesus to your heart. David, we like to conclude every podcast and John gave us a nice little primer there uh, <laughs> for our final question, which is um, what, how do we, how do we believe Jesus would teach us, would answer this question? Why God, why is uh, Christianity different than other religions? And uh, luckily for you, we let Peter and John go first. And then you are the closer. You're Rivera, since I know you would like that. Rivera. Nice. Who actually, funny story, you know, he's a Pentecostal preacher. Huh? His huh. wife is a pastor, so I don't know if that throws off some people that are listening. But, um, <laughs> And uh, I spoke at a Spanish conference one time with a translator, which is always interesting. And he spoke too. Wow. He spoke right after me, so wow. he was my closer. He was closer, yeah, yeah. I went seven strong, and then he came in and got the last six out. I'd probably say more middle relief on that. We'll yeah. go with that. You, you gave you were the setup man, you know. That's awesome. Wow. Well, what you've shared already has been so really great and I think refreshing in just so many ways. I I, I think a lot of people listening are gonna just be refreshed by that vision of Jesus. David, thanks so much for doing it. Um, as I think, how would how would Jesus answer this question? I I think that he would he would go. You know, I every other religion is telling you you have to do something, and I would tell you that I've already done it. And when he was on the cross, one of the things that Jesus said his last words were, it is finished. And I think that in and of itself is so significant. And not only did he pay that price, but then he, he rose from the dead and showed the power that he truly has as God. And, um, and so I think that's how Jesus would answer the question. I think he would, he would do it in love. I don't think he would be beating people over the head with it, as you were saying, Dave. Um, I don't think he would also be saying now you, you know, get your act together so you can come to me. I think he would just be saying, um, I've paid that price already and, uh, I would invite you to follow me. And that's what I think he would, he would be saying. So, uh, I feel like John and Dave, uh, shared their story. So I feel just in this moment answering that question, you know, I've lived most of my life. Um, in a weird way, believing God loves me, but God doesn't want me. And so you, you take that and you put it on every single relationship. You know, my parents love me, but they don't necessarily want me. My friends love me, but they don't want, I'm only useful and that's exhausting. And so I think when I've, you know, just engaged this question, it hasn't been one or two moments, but it's been a series. So I think about going into college 
And if you read about Christianity, when people engage the book of Romans, it's just this powerful realization of what Jesus has done for you. I, I look at that moment in my life. And then I also think of, you know, a few years ago, I had a very um, just painful ending to a season and career in my life that just was unexpected. That was hard to deal with. But recently, I think the biggest picture of the gospel, uh, it happened a few nights ago. So my wife and I, you know, we're meeting with this couple and uh, the the um, the fiance turns to me and he asks me this. He's like, why should I have a child? And I have a 15 month Haley. And um, I almost teared up because I said, I have never experienced in my life this relationship of how God feels about me. And, you know, I think of the gospel, there's nothing Haley can do that will make me love her more or less. And, you know, and as a parent, you know, I know that my love's really imperfect and she's probably going to fail me in some ways, but, you know, even right now, let's just take this present moment in time. She says probably about 15 words you know, I mean, if you would hear her say like, dad, dad, we celebrate it like she won the Super Bowl, <laughs> you know, and and I think about Jesus in our lives and we're, you know, I don't know what you've characterized Jesus as in your life, whether he's this authoritative father that doesn't love you or whether he's a loving father that doesn't want to be around you or just you're a bother to him. I, I think what the gospel says is this is that it's not about you and it's about him. And answering that question, I said, I don't think I've ever experienced a time in my life where I felt like I came to grasp a little bit more of how God feels about us than this moment. And I think, you know, you think of the heights of parenting in marriage, you know, the moment that you kind of feel like you're experiencing the true gospel is when you look at this and you say, if I'm so imperfect and broken and I can experience, how much more does God love and care about us? Yeah, that's good, Peter. Um, I think for me, I'll just, I actually want to read something from the scriptures because I think like these are Jesus' words. Like this is, I think, what he, he wants us to hear. Matthew 11, 20 to 30, he says, come to me all, uh, all you who are weary and burdened. Like that's all of us. Like That's all of us. Parents, single people, wherever you are, there's weariness to this life and there's a burden. And Jesus, like the, one of the things I want to say about the gospel is it's an invitation. Right? So some people look at the scripture as instruction. Some people look at it for inspiration. But ultimately, the scriptures are inviting us into a story, into a new rhythm, a new life, the Jesus life. And so he says, come to me all, all who are weary and burdened and, and I will give you rest. The rest we're looking for is not going to be found anywhere else. Jesus alone can give us rest. Take my yoke upon you, which means like sync up with me, live life with me, learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What makes his yoke easy, what makes his burden light is the work that he's done and doing and will faithfully do in his children until the day it's brought to completion. And so Jesus is inviting you, you know, if you're listening, he's inviting you to come to him and to experience the goodness, the rest, the joy, um, the life that's found only in him. And we will be miserably exhausted or um, poorly satisfied uh, with lesser things for the entirety of our lives until we experience the goodness of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. David Herwick, thanks for joining us on the Why God Why podcast. 
If you have any questions or you'd like Peter or John to address a specific question in the future, uh, go to our website, whygodwhypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.